Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. John 14, 1-6 Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's bow together. Lord, open up our hearts and minds to the truths of your word. Help us, Lord, to realize that you truly are the only source to find our way to heaven, Lord, to know you, and to find eternal life. Lord, thank you for your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage begins with, Do not let your heart be troubled. Well, why would the apostles, the disciples' hearts be troubled? we got to go back into the last chapter and see what was going on. In chapter 13, Jesus said a number of things that would have been troubling. First, he says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, the disciples didn't know who it was. They didn't know how he's going to betray them. They just knew that there's a, a, a betrayer in their midst, a traitor. And so that was troubling. And then, closer to the end of the chapter, Jesus says, I'm going to leave you, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Now just think about it for just a minute. These men had been following Jesus for about three and a half years. They had followed him everywhere. They had sacrificed whatever they needed to in order to follow him. They had given up their careers as fishermen and other uh, lines of work. So they could be with Jesus day in and day out. He was their life. They didn't know anything other than following Jesus. Listening to him. Hearing his call. Obeying what he was telling them to do. Now all of a sudden he says, Oh, by the way, I'm about to leave you. And where I'm going, you can't go. Now, they were struggling to understand what Jesus meant by that. Jesus had already many times, especially if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke instead of John, had mentioned many times that he was going to die and on the third day rise again. Notice that he doesn't really mention very often or in a real clear way that after his resurrection, he's going to be ascending to be back with the Father in heaven. So here's their thought. And it's pretty evident if you look through the history of the apostles during that time. They kind of thought like the Jews that the Messiah would come and set up a kingdom on earth. Well, how better to set up a kingdom on earth than to die for the sins of people, come back to life, and then be here on earth to set up an eternal kingdom here on earth for people to follow. The disciples had already been arguing, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? James and John had been kind of saying, who's going to be on your left and who's going to be on your right? The the people of honor in your kingdom. So they had this mindset that Jesus was about to set up an earthly kingdom. They were going to be a part of it in key positions. 
They really could not comprehend that Jesus was going to leave them and they would be without him. Where was he going to go? Well, Jesus does not always speak clearly about what's actually going to take place. He does so a little bit here, but the disciples really do struggle. They probably assume that he's going to leave because persecution is getting more and more intense. They don't know if he's leaving to escape the persecution that's aimed at him or if he's leaving to protect them from the persecution that's towards all of them. They surely cannot understand how he could leave and they could not follow where he goes. If you're going to leave for protection, why can't we go and be protected as well? And so, if you look at all these things, you can understand why his disciples had a troubled heart. They, they had a heavy heart. They didn't know what to go. Well, let's put this in today's day and age. How many times have we kind of had preceded notions as to what God should do in our lives? The path that we would like for God to put us on? How we want God to take care of us and to get us where we want to be at a certain time in life. Don't we have preconceived ideas? I have. I think we all have. Well, sometimes we get confused when God's ways are not our ways. Where he puts us on a little bit different path than what our desires are. How many of y'all have had your path changed a little bit in life? I know I have. I was studying to be an electrical engineer, and here I am. God put a big turn in my path. I didn't know what to do about it. We all have gone through that. Well, the disciples were going through that. They had this path kind of figured out that they were going to be on Jesus' left and right and serving alongside of him in his earthly kingdom. That wasn't what was going to happen. And they were struggling. But God's ways are not our ways. So they had this troubled heart. Do not let your heart be troubled. Now, we all have a little bit of a sense of worrying and fretting about us. The unknown, the future, is always something that we struggle with. And if we're not careful, we let the worries and the frets really take control of our lives. Well, Jesus saw this happening in the lives of his disciples. So he simply says, do not let your heart be troubled. You know, that's easier said than done, isn't it? It's easy for somebody to say, quit worrying, quit fretting. But it's a whole lot different to actually be able to do that. So Jesus, I think, gives the answer to their worries, their troubled hearts, in that same verse. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, these were Jewish men. They had grown up in Jewish households who more than likely had been following the Jewish customs of teaching God, talking about God from the time that they raised at their mealtimes to the time that they went to bed. They knew all about God. They believed in God the Father. That was solidified in their lives. But Jesus doesn't say just believe in God. He says, believe in me also. See, Jesus had been saying all these I am statements. He's about to say another one. I am the way, the truth, and life is what he's going to say here. But he's also said, I am the gate. I am the shepherd. I am the, 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 the light. I am all these things. Well, 
Every time he says the words, I am, he is equating himself with God the Father. And they hear it, but they're looking at a man who is flesh and blood. And they cannot comprehend that how this man named Jesus, who eats and has all these physical contra- you know, situations in his life, <coughs> excuse me, can be God. How is that possible? <coughs> oh, excuse me. How is it possible that this man that, that looks just like us could be God? But that's what Jesus keeps saying. I am God the Son. I stepped out of heaven. I came to earth, sent from God to die for the sins of man. And one day I will return. They couldn't comprehend that. And let's just be honest. If you were on that side of the cross, you would have been struggling as well. And so he's saying you've got to come to the point where you believe that I am he. I am the Messiah. I am God the Son. I am the one sent from heaven. I am the one sent from God. I have been obedient to God the Father through everything I have said and done. You must believe in me. So there's the answer to the troubled heart. Trust God, believe in him, and trust me, believe in me. I'm not going to lead you astray. I'm telling you what you need to hear. So that's what he says, believe. So then we move into verse 2, in my father's house. You know God has a house? Well, he really doesn't have a physical building like we would think about. It's called heaven. Heaven is a real place. What is heaven like? Well, you can go over to Revelations where it talks about the new heaven and the new earth. And God gives John, this same John, a vision much later in his life about this new heaven. And he talks about the streets of gold and the gates of pearl and jasper and all these other beautiful descriptive things. But notice one thing. All that John can use are earthly terms to describe something that's not earthly. He is using the most beautiful, precious things that man knows about. Gold and all these gems to describe something that is undescribable. So, what is heaven like? We'll find out one day. But... Basically, what we're being told is it is beyond our comprehension. In my Father's house, heaven, a real place, a place where there will no longer be a need for sun or stars or moons because Jesus will be the light. It really doesn't matter what it's going to look like. It's going to be who's there that matters because Jesus will be the center attention of heaven. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Now, if you have the King James or the New King James Version, it says, In my Father's house are many mansions. Well, the word mansion came from when uh, they translated the, the Greek into the Latin, the Vulgate, and they used the word that we would translate as mansions in the Latin Vulgate. But that's really not what the word is. It's monet, which means an abode or a dwelling place, a place where you abide. It's all that it means. There's, 
Folks, I love gospel music. But the, the ones that say, I have a mansion over the hillside, folks, we don't have a building separated from God. We don't have a building separated from each other in heaven. Here's the picture. We see this very similar to what happens when a young Jewish man is betrothed. We've talked about it a little bit before. When the betrothal period begins, it's usually about a year long. And during that year, the man and his father begin adding on a room to the father's house. When that is complete, then it's time to go get the bride and her bridesmaids and to have the wedding feast. And then when it's all said and done, then they move in with the family. That's the same picture. Jesus is going to prepare us a dwelling place. He is adding on a room in the same house. We're still a part of the same family, all together. Folks, if you think that you're going to be separated from your person that you don't like very much in heaven, you're going to be in the same house, in the same family. So you need to get along with them now so that you can get along with them then. We look and we see that this dwelling place is just an addition, another opening into the Father's house for us to come. Well, how do we get there? Well, we've got to be a part of the family. We've got to know Jesus as Savior and Lord of our lives. We need to have surrendered to him as Lord. That's the only way. And the last part of that says that I have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, Jesus is not physically building on a room into heaven. I don't think heaven is going to be stones or two-by-fours or bricks or anything like that. It is a dwelling place where we will spend eternity in the presence of Almighty God. As wonderful as those descriptions are that John gives us, we're not going to be worried about our, our furnishings or our fixtures it doesn't matter whether we have granite countertops or marble countertops. Folks, there won't be granite or marble there. We won't need countertops. We'll have perfected bodies that won't need that. We will be in the presence of God and His Son Jesus. And it's going to be something that we cannot comprehend in our earthly form. So, whatever heaven's going to be like, don't worry about it. It's going to be better than you could ever possibly imagine. But he's gone to prepare a place for us. He's gone to show us that he is going to be ready for us to come and be with him. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. Here's Jesus talking to his disciples. If it were not so, I would have told you. In other words, he says, if heaven only has enough space for 144,000. I would have told you, and you're not one of those 144,000. So just forget about it. No. Jesus is preparing a place for all who will come and believe in him. Who place their faith in him. He says in verse 3, I will come again. I will come again. Now that means that if Jesus will come again, he's got to leave. This should be a clear evidence that Jesus is not staying here on earth. 
He's going to the Father's house. He's going to heaven. And he's going to come again. Well, disciples, when they finally realize that Jesus is leaving them not to go to a different land, but to go to heaven, to go back home, they begin immediately thinking, okay, he's about to come back and get us. Them, 2,000 years ago, they were expecting Jesus to come back in their lifetime and get them and take them with him to heaven. Well, Jesus never said when he was coming back. He just says, I will come again, and I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Well, when Jesus comes again, he's going to receive us and take us back to be with him. Now, folks, there's so many different theories of how that's going to take place. I'm going to share with you a passage of scripture that describes what we call the rapture. The word rapture is not in the Bible. It's, it's harpazo, which means snatched out. And it's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep or dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of the Lord, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. To me, I believe this separate from Jesus' second coming When Jesus comes for his second coming, he's coming to the earth to judge the world. And according to how you read Revelations, it kind of sounds like we're coming back with him. Which means we have to have already left so that we can come back with him at his second coming. I think that 1 Thessalonians is talking about us leaving, meeting him in the air before he ever comes back to set his foot back on earth. And that will be... Him taking us to be with Him in heaven. How you read this is between you and God. That's my personal opinion. You can take it or leave it however you want to. But I think personally that's this is separate from the second coming. I believe the second coming will be coming back with Him. Revelation says we'll be an army. That's kind of a misnomer. We're not going to be lifting any swords. We're not going to be fighting because Jesus will slay all the enemies with the sword of his tongue, his mouth, his words. We won't be a battle. It'll be a slaughter from him. So you know where I'm going is what Jesus is saying. You know where I'm going. I just told you in my Father's house, heaven, are many dwelling places. And I am going to prepare a place for you to come and be with me because I'm about to go there and I will come again and take you with me so you know where I am going. You would think after all these words that the disciples who have been following him and listening to him for three and a half years would get it. Not the case. At least Thomas didn't get it. And Thomas kind of speaks as if he's speaking for the whole group because he uses the word we 
Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? At least Thomas is probably still believing that Jesus is leaving them physically to go to another physical place somewhere. And if you're not telling us where you're going, how do we know where you're going and how do we know how to get there? Well, Jesus is trying to be patient with them, trying to say, I'm going this way, not that way. I'm going to heaven. I'm preparing a place for you. But here is the answer to your question, Thomas. Jesus said to them, I am. Let's just stop right there. I am. Listen. I am. I am God. I am equal with God. I am God the Son. This is not my home. I'm going to be going back to my Father. I am. I am the Messiah sent from God. I came as a birth of a virgin, just like the prophecies have foretold. I was born in Bethlehem, just as the prophecies have foretold. I grew up in Nazareth, just as the prophecies have foretold. I came out of Egypt, just as the prophecies have foretold. I'm about to die for the sins of the world, just as the prophecies have foretold. I will rise on the third day, just as the prophecies have foretold. Now, I am. I'm the one who has promised the Messiah. I am the way. The way. Not a way, but the way. Now, there are a lot of people who are stating very boldly that there's not just one way to get to God, to get to heaven. That there are multiple ways to get there. If you just believe in just about anything, you're going to get to go to heaven because it is your faith in whatever your faith is in that will get you there. Many will say, okay, well, there's many gods, so if you worship any of the gods, then that's your way to heaven. Whether it's Allah, whether it's Buddha, whether it's all these other isms, if you believe hard enough, we'll all end up in the same place, heaven. Then there's the other side that says, well, it really isn't what I believe in, it's how I live. If I live a good life where I treat others right and do good deeds, and my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then that's my ticket to heaven. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, I am the way, the only way to heaven. There is no other way. He even says it. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's pretty emphatic. He's not suggesting that I am just a way. He says, this is the only way to get to God. Me. I am the way. Then he goes on and says, I am the truth. John, if you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And with, with the Word, creation came into being. Basically, Jesus is the Word. He is the truth. He is the Word of God. He is the gospel of salvation. There are no other ways that you can find the truth but through the gospel of Jesus. 
In our world today, in our Christian world today, there are many who stand behind pulpits or some of them don't use pulpits anymore. Some of them just stand in their blue jeans and t-shirts, whatever way they're doing it, and they will change the gospel a little bit. They'll say, you know, if I preach it just like the Bible says, then people don't want to hear it. So I'm going to weaken it a little bit. I'm going to take this part out. When the Bible talks about suffering and sacrifice, I'm not going to talk about things like that. I'm not going to talk about persecution that is expected in the life of a Christian. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk about total surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. I'm just going to say, no, if you just kind of, kind of believe, that's all you need. That's not the gospel. The truth is the entire gospel. You can't take bits and pieces out of it and it still be the truth. You've got to accept the whole truth of the gospel. And that's what Jesus is saying. I, the gospel, am the truth. You can't take a part of me out of the equation and it still be the truth. So Jesus is the way, the only way to God. He is the truth. He is the gospel that gets us to God. And then he says, and I am the life. Going back to John chapter 1, Jesus the word spoke life into being. Actually, you got to go back to Genesis to get to that. God breathed the breath of life into mankind after he spoke creation into being. Jesus is the life. Without Jesus, nothing that was made would have been made. That's what John chapter 1 says. That includes us. He breathed the breath of life into us He gave us physical life. But not only just physical life, but he is also our source of eternal life. Our faith, our trust, our belief, and our surrender into him gives us his gift of eternal life. So he's the way, the only way to heaven. He is the truth. He is the message that we must accept and believe and trust and apply to our lives to be saved. And he is the life. He gave us physical life, and he is the only source of eternal life. Well, how do we receive that? Believe first. We have to be exposed to the gospel to believe it. A lot of people are saying, well, what about all those people in the world who've never heard the gospel? They need to hear it. The Bible is very, very clear. This is the way. Without it, no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. That is the only way anybody gets to heaven. That's why we have an Annie Armstrong Easter offering for missionaries who go into the areas of our North American territories to share the gospel in areas that is not being preached in. That's why we give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering so that missionaries can go into the Areas of the world where the gospel has not been heard before. That's why many have surrendered their lives to missions. You would think that in a community like Macon, Mississippi, that everybody's heard the gospel. Y'all need to talk to Jeff and Patrick about that. They have been ministering to this community for the last several years. And they've taken these young kids and they have started talking about the the Bible stories that we all grew up on and all knew, 
They don't have a clue what those are. They've never heard them before. This community has people in it that do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's on us. We've got to be the force that gets the word to the people. We're so comfortable with each other, aren't we? When's the last time you invited somebody to come to church that may not know the gospel like they need to? We got to reach out to the community. Jesus says he is the only way, he is the only truth, and he is the only source of life that will get anybody on the face of this earth to heaven. And guess what? He's no longer physically here to tell that. Those 11, then you add Paul and Matthias, those men are no longer here to share the gospel. Who's left? Us. We're his ambassadors. We are a priestly nation. We've been called by God, sent out, equipped, given spiritual gifts to do exactly what God wants us to do. Share the gospel. That's what we need to be doing. If Jesus truly is the only way, if he, the gospel, is the only truth, if he is the only source of eternal life, then the world needs to hear it. They don't need a watered-down gospel that says, well, there's this thing in the Bible that says that if you believe, if anyone believes on Jesus, he will be saved. Yes, that is part of the gospel, part of the gospel, but it's not the entire gospel. The entire gospel is a surrendering to yourself, to the Lordship of Christ, saying, Lord, you are Lord. To call him Lord means that he is master of us. That we're not holding anything back. We're not saying, well, you can have this part of my life, but I'm in total control of all this rest of my life. You can have this little sliver that I call salvation, but the rest of my life is mine to live as I want to. Show me where the Bible says that. It's not there. It's called a surrendering. God is in control. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit, so that his Holy Spirit would infiltrate our hearts, our lives, our entire being, to give us wisdom and guidance and understanding, and he will show us the way to live. And yet we just kind of put him over into this little corner of our lives and say, I'll, I'll, I'll call on you when I feel like I need you, but I think i got this under control. I know what I want to do, and I'm doing it. Not biblical to live a surrendered life may actually bring trouble. It may bring persecution. It may bring suffering. It may bring trials. God says it's okay. I got it covered. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Count it all joy when you face these trials because it's going to increase your faith, your patience, your understanding, your reliance on me. Don't worry about it. Even if you are one of those that we find in the scriptures that died a martyr's life because of me, it's okay. The reason why you died a martyr's life was so that it would increase the faith of others. Paul later on wrote many times that it was good for him to be imprisoned. 
It was good for him to be beaten and even stoned as to death. Why? Because when others who were being drawn to the faith saw that this faith, this message was worth dying for, they said, it must be real. It must be true. If we're willing to die for our faith, it will encourage others to say, that's a faith worth dying for. It's a faith that is real. That's what I need. Unfortunately, there's another religion in our world that is outdoing Christians. It's called Islam. Do you know how many Islamic people are willing to die for their faith at a moment's notice? A whole lot more than Christians. A whole lot more. God's not calling us to die unless he calls us to die. He's calling us to live, to live for him. He's telling us, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You're going to die one day, physically. You're going to have a place to go. Even if I come again before you physically die, you're going to see something spectacular. All those saints who have died before you will rise. And meet me in the air. Then those of you who are left here on earth, still alive, will join him. And I'll take you with me to heaven. Man, can you imagine what that's going to look like? Can you imagine? I can't. That we got a big globe called the earth. It doesn't matter what side of it you're on. You're going to hear the voice shout, you will hear the trumpet, and we'll meet him in the air. That's something. Don't worry about, will I like heaven? Will it be what I want it to be? You don't know what it's going to be like. There's no way that any of us could ever expect what heaven's going to be like. The most important thing is, we'll be in the presence of our Lord. That's all that really matters. Just bow together. Dear Lord, you have shared with us today, through your word, that there's an answer to a troubled heart. And Lord, we have all had troubled hearts. We may have a troubled heart right now. Lord, regardless of the reasons for that, whether it's that we're struggling to understand who you are in our lives or how we're supposed to follow you, or Lord, whether there's other issues in our lives that we're just struggling with, Lord, the answer is faith, belief, knowing that you truly are Lord, that you are the Lord of our lives, you are the Lord of salvation, you are the Lord who loves us. And it's preparing a place for us that where he is, where you are right now, we will be with you someday. Lord, we have no comprehension what that's going to be like. Lord, our minds cannot comprehend it. It's impossible. Lord, when that day comes, what a joy it will be to be in your presence. To no longer have sorrow or pain, or suffering. But Lord, just complete, eternal 
joy. Lord, we can't comprehend that. What a blessing that will be. But Lord, there's only way, one way for us to receive that. And that's to completely surrender to you as Savior and Lord. And Lord, we may have done that at one time in our lives that we call a point of salvation. Lord, we need to continue to surrender every day so that you can continue to use us in a way that truly brings honor and glory to your name, that brings others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, be found faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.